Well, hello there, ladies, gentlemen, children of most ages. Welcome to this Futs on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. At ease, soldiers. And Drew Davendale. Hello. So, we have an exciting clutch of films to get to with no real theme to like them, apart from we saw them. So, that'll have to do you. And as such, we're going to start off with a look at Braven. So, Drew, why don't you tell us about that? Jason Momoa is a lumberjack. And he's okay. <laughs> That's probably the, that, you'd probably just cut the review short there. That <laughs> seems to be about right. Moving on. <laughs> Momoa stars as the improbably named Joe Braven, the owner of a logging <laughs> co- and it's a, it's a ridiculous name, isn't it? <laughs> I actually, when I first heard about Braven, I assumed that they'd made some sort of new word out of the word brave. Probably effectively what he did, and, but and, a word be, and another word ending in N. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes like brave, braver, braven. Let's say Momoa stars as the improbably, improbably named Joe Braven, the owner of a logging company in Newfoundland, Canada. He's just a regular guy, decent boss, loving father and husband, that sort of thing. His life seems generally happy. His only real difficulty is his father, Lyndon Stephen Lang who is suffering from dementia and whose condition is worsening. Lyndon gets involved in a bar fight after he goes wandering where he mistakes a young woman for his now deceased wife. Lyndon is rescued by Joe, this scene establishing that Joe knows how to handle himself in a fight, and while Lyndon is being treated in hospital, the town sheriff tells Joe that if this happens again he will have to arrest the man who he knows has dementia. This scene establishing that all movie police officers are required to be willfully unreasonable and unhelpful. (laughs) After discussing his father's continuing care needs with his wife, Joe decides to take Lyndon to their cabin in the forest to close it up for the winter. Lyndon has typically been happy at the cabin, so it's a good place for Joe to try and catch him in a lucid moment and have a frank discussion about his condition. Shortly after arriving though, they discover that the cabin has been used to stash a large amount of drugs. The kind of large amount sufficiently big enough that the owners of the drugs will have no qualms about killing any witnesses to them. Just as Joe and Lyndon are about to cut short their trip and leave, the owner of the drugs, Casson, Garrett Dillahunt, arrives with his heavily armed gang and Joe is going to have to fight his way out. There's an added wrinkle in that Joe discovers that his daughter has stowed away in in his truck. First time director Lynn Oding whose career until now has been primarily as a stunt coordinator, working from a script by two first-time writers, has created a solid, confident and unhurried film that belies the inexperience of the trio. Braven's first half is a fairly slow burn, but it does a solid job of setting Joe up as a likeable character, one we can care about, and also it demonstrates that he is capable and resourceful. Simple things, like setting up early on that the family used the cabin for hunting, or that Joe's wife is an archery instructor, and certainly aided by Momoa's physical size, mean that when our protagonists are called on to become action heroes, it's not a difficult jump to believe it, rather than wondering how an ordinary Joe sorry, can be this badass, or have to explain to the audience how this regular dad was in fact some sort of legendary SAS Greenberry Spetsnaz Delta Force Commando mofo. <laughs> That said, I wouldn't have thought lumberjacking involved quite so much accuracy with throwing axes, but then again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You've got to use axes. A, That's just transferable skill, Scott. Has a patina of truthiness about it. will do. <laughs> the second half, having established all of this, is a considerably crunchier and more brutal affair, and while it's not quite as much action as you might expect, what there is is handled with efficiency and a refreshing lack of flashiness or being overly stylized. All of the main players equip themselves pretty well, though naturally it's Momoa who is the standout. Though the big surprise to me, given his physique and his previous roles, is that here he is more towards the action of, say, a Liam Neeson in the grey, rather than an Arnie in anything. And both Arnie and Momoa played Conan, if you recall. No, no one recalls that Conan film. (laughs) <laughs> the only thing I recall about the Conan film is we saw that together, Scott. The only thing I recall <laughs> is that both of us basically thought our ears were bleeding um, by the time we came out of it because it was possibly the loudest thing I'd ever experienced. Yeah, what a pointless reboot that was. I most are, but <laughs> Braven was sold to me as a throwback to late 80s, early 90s style action films, mm-hmm. which I was very much on board with the idea of. 
And it is that, I guess, more or less. Even if it's more of the middling sort. And really, that's what Brave It is. A mid-grade action film. Competent, serviceable Saturday afternoon fair. Never going to rub shoulders with the action movie greats. Or, to be honest, never going to be remembered a month after you watch <laughs> it. But a perfectly acceptable way to spend an hour and a half of your time. Could have done without the racism, though. The presence of which particularly stood out as I only noticed one instance of it. Hmm. Weird. Yeah, I only finished watching this a couple of hours ago, so it's not really had time to you know sink in with its immense complexity and nuance. <laughs> uh, but yeah, largely, largely agree with what you're saying. It's fine. Um, obviously, genre-bound B-movie, if, if you like that sort of thing, then this is the sort of thing you like. Momo is surprisingly uh, relatable in this, I thought. Um, yeah, I he, thought that too. And he also, I'm not saying he's particularly stretched uh, in this <laughs> film, but more so than anything I've seen him in before. You know, he actually does have emotions to convey and does an all right job at doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was quite impressed, I guess, with uh, Garrett Dillahunt, who I've not seen in too much stuff lately. But he, as, as the kind of head bad guy, he's sort of commendably efficient without sort of chewing the scenery. And that, it felt like a kind of nice, refreshing change of that rather than have someone, apart from towards the end where he's been pushed a bit. Um, you know, yeah. He doesn't immediately go into frothing at the mouth territory. So yeah, uh, Everything about it is fairly low-key. Yeah. And I rather like that. Um, yes, I enjoyed it well enough for its 90 minutes. It's uh, an easy watch if you're into any kind of action film. Um, do you want something that's a bit more low-key and old school and a bit less flashy and yep. a bit more axe-based in certain <laughs> So, yeah, it's it starts off awfully slow. Uh, the first half hour is a, maybe a bit mm. of a chore, but uh, if you can get past that, then it's uh, the last hour has enough to commend it that it's yeah. uh, certainly worth a look. I, for the most part, quite enjoyed the slow burn of the first half, but I did, at points, certainly feel it, feel it dragged a little. For a 90-minute film, actually, it felt a bit longer than that. Yeah. I think perhaps he spent a little too long um, focusing on his family and stuff, and there's certainly, there was value in that. It shows a regular guy that you like him and you like his family, and it all seems reasonably natural and believable, uh, but it's maybe just he spent a little too long on that. It's, uh, yeah... B-grade action film and enjoyable for that. I sat down to watch this back-to-back the other day after Cloverfield Paradox when I was um, miserable and full of the flu underneath a blanket. And the slow burn of the first half served uh, no great purpose to me whatsoever because I must have fallen asleep within two minutes of it. Um, (laughs) That probably says as much about my endurance for the Cloverfield Paradox as it does about the pace of the first half of this. What I will say is this, I did wake up at some point during this um, as some fellow went to uh, walk to the door of a cabin and got an arrow through the eye. And I said, oh, that's good. And I would probably... <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty cool moment to wake up at. And I would probably have said to myself, that's a bit silly, really. But for the fact, I think we all probably saw that video that emerged uh, online at uh, some point last year of Jason Momoa actually throwing a hatchet, which I'm assuming is from behind the scenes when they were filming this, um, throwing a hatchet uh, at a target about 30 yards away, apparently for the reward of a pint of beer, and doing it with with terrifying yet charming efficiency, which makes me think, actually, I probably would believe Jace Momoa in what I understand this role to be had, had I not slept through it. Um, and I will, be, I will be intrigued to go back and watch this, which I, I promise I will do. Um, I would be intrigued to check that on YouTube because I'm unaware of this video and um, kind of what you just stopped speaking for Stephen as well. Look at oh, it. wow. Yeah, no, d- definitely check it out. It was just a really short video that cropped up. As I say, I'm assuming it was from when they were filming this of Jason Momoa probably demonstrating to the effects team why they could probably save $10,000 on a CG hatchet because <laughs> it turns out Jason Momoa is pretty hot at throwing hatchets in actuality. Before we move on, just think about Jason Momoa and what you were saying about him too, Scott. It's like... I really wouldn't have, I mean, in as much he was okay with a few sort of kind of lighter lines that he got to deliver, I think maybe some of the Joss Whedon lines in yeah. Justice League, but have most of the things I've seen him in before uh, as Cal Drogo in Game of Thrones and as Conan, as we mentioned, that I didn't really have a great deal of hope for him being... It's not even so much as he's charismatic, he just feels like quite like a, a regular guy in this. And he, I was surprised that he could do that quite as well, but that's quite pleasing. <laughs> well, if you watch that video clip, Drew, you'll see he comes across as a regular likable guy in that, albeit a reg- one a regular who's really, hatchet- really good at throwing hatchets. <laughs> a regular hatchet ace guy. <laughs> yes. 
I would say it would encourage you to be Jason Momoa's friend rather than his enemy. <laughs> yes, the post. So, from from hatchets to things often accused of hatchet jobs. Ah, <laughs> here's your shitty linking device for the evening. The post, Scott. Yes, the post. Leaked by one of the authors, Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers detailed the extent to which the USA had been monkeying with the situation in Vietnam well before entering conflict openly, the reasons for doing so, and perhaps most shockingly, the government's honest assessments of how well, or rather badly, the war was going. The New York Times started to publish stories culled from this in June 1971, soon drawing legal bother from Nixon's administration. Meanwhile in Washington, the editor of the Washington Post, Ben Bradley, played here by Tom Hanks, is trying to move his paper's reputation from a regional concern to a major player on the same level as the Times, and is disappointed to have missed out on this. He encourages his staff, in particular assistant editor Ben Bagdikin, played by Bob Odenkirk, to find out where this came from. He eventually does, meaning a headache for publisher Catherine Graham, played by Meryl Streep. She's still unsure of her position as publisher after the death of her husband, and she's trying to balance the mission of the paper to uncover stories just like this, and to protect the institution from the financial harm that seems to be a real possibility, coming just days after the launch on the stock exchange, which could prompt skittish investors to back out of this business-saving deal. Her family, advisors, and the Post's legal team are firmly against publishing these stories, and Ben Bradley and the editorial team insist that they must go out. Graham must make the call and deal with any repercussions. Now, it should come as no surprise by this point that Steven Spielberg knows how to put a film together, and while I've not caught myself amongst either's most ardent fans, Hanks and Streep give good performances amongst an excellent supporting cast. The period detail seems on point, and it looks and sounds every bit as slickly professional as you'd expect from a crew like this. So, on paper, The Post is a very good film, but it left me pretty cold. Not entirely so, it's well on the right side of average, but I couldn't find much to hold my interest. There seems to be long stretches that were used to saying uh, to someone saying they should publish, and then someone saying they shouldn't, and then another person saying that they should, and then I nodded off a little bit, quite literally. It's been a long week. So the middle stretch of this, where all these decisions are being formed, that's really the heart of the character development for Graham in particular, I found quite dull. There's more interest for me in the first and final acts, when we're still trying to uncover what the mystery story is that the Times is sitting on, and then the actions taken by Nixon's administration in response. But that middle stretch, the questions at the heart of the film and the supposed relevance to today's blighted media hellscape and the buffoon currently running the USA, super boring, uh, entirely under-examined and not even remotely entertaining. So where does that leave the post? Uh, For all that, it's a well-made film, and I can't imagine anyone watching this and feeling like they've wasted their time with it. But I can't imagine that we'll be thinking about it much in 10 years, or 5 years, or next year. It's a fine film, but for me, a minor work for all involved. Get to it eventually, but it's not worth taking extraordinary efforts to see. Does Tom Hanks at any point make this noise? <laughs> <laughs> I believe that he must have managed to write that out of his contract this time, I don't recall it. <laughs> Deary me, what is the world coming to? Uh, let's just, because you've mentioned it, let's start with Tom Hanks. I, I thought he was rather miscast in this. I just, I feel somebody slightly gruffer, perhaps seems more fitting for the show and I know nothing about the real Ben Bradley but for instance Jason Robards who played him in All the President's Men seemed to be a more fitting actor for at least this type of role even if it's not necessarily accurate to the person in real life though Mm. I guess a 1970s 1960s 1970s newspaper editor you would think it would be a good chance to be more like Jason Robards than Tom Hanks but for that Hanks is engaging enough as he typically is. I just I don't think it's the best casting. And then yeah, I don't think I can disagree with you, Scott, that it is a fairly minor work film. Although I enjoyed it, I think I enjoyed it more than you did from what you're saying. Mm. But I wasn't blown away by it. I was kind of hoping to be. And it was like the bits that when they start doing some sort of investigative journalism and that sort of thing, and I thought I'm really interested in that. But then it, yeah, in the middle, it does drop quite a bit. Yeah. Where does it stack up against Bridge of Spies? Because it seems like tonally and pace-wise, this is probably in the same ballpark. Nowhere near. I mean, really? Yeah, yeah Stefano's good. I, I can see the same arguments about the cadence of it, but yeah, in terms of quality and interest and the actual central story there, this is not a patch on it. Um, it's not just because Mark Rylance is so good in Bridge of Spies, but there are fewer characters in Bridge of Spies, so you kind of spend long with one character and it's more focused because there are necessarily more people in this that need a bit more time that it's 
it's a bit less less focused. For all the people who were saying that this was some sort of relevance to what's going on today, I couldn't really find any of it because so much of it is just one woman being told to publish or not publish something and eventually deciding one way or the other. Which was, you know, it was good to see her, you know, overcoming the voices that were sort of trying to put her down and all that kind of stuff, but it, it didn't really seem to have any sort of relevance to modern day press. Um, I couldn't find it. There's something, but it's not so much her story, it's the the backstory of it. it's the New York Times side that's really relevant, that the president is using what's effectively executive power to block publication of things that are quite clearly in the public interest and are going against the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, whereas the Washington Post story is a bit less of that. Mm. So the New York Times story going in the background has more relevance today for or Trump mm. trying to basically affect the way that people see the media and using his influence incorrectly. Yes, maybe they should have made the film about that then. Yes, Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the central story is interesting enough, and there's quite a satisfying moment when... Meryl Streep dies. <laughs> I don't have the antipathy towards her that I used to. Not yeah. at all, I know. Um, it's gone now. I actually kind of appreciate it some things. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's hard to muster that level of antipathy for her now. I just kind of accept her for what she is. I see. I, I think you obviously you're on the same page as me then. That I used to like really never understood the regard with which she, in which she was held. Yeah. Uh, there are a handful of things in which I've changed my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's a kind of throwaway film, Florence Foster Jenkins, she's actually a very very sympathetic character in that. Mm. I kind of like her in that, and I always did like her in Adaptation, which is the yeah, singular yeah, yeah. film um, for a long time that I rated her in, and then August Osage County, which is five or six years ago now. But only a handful of us. I've never understood the the regard in which she's held by everybody who thinks she's like the second coming or something, but in this, she's okay. But <laughs> I don't have that antipathy or that strength of feeling that I want her to die, Craig. So. No, nor do I. I'm being, I'm being flippant. I know. But yeah, there's a... <laughs> or am I? <laughs> answers on a postcard or a Crime Stoppers tip line. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've ruined the pace of this for you. Sorry. Uh, no, I, I didn't have much of a pace, I don't think. I was just, there's, a, there's a scene where like, she sort of finally learns to stand up for herself. And that's really quite satisfying. At the same time, though, I'm thinking, yeah, with like, it feels like it, it almost, I need to check to see whether there's any truth in it. But it felt a bit shoehorned in, like to really take advantage of the the movement just now for equal pay and things like that. And, which are all good things, I'm glad they're happening, but it just it felt a bit obvious, a bit on the nose. I, I may be reading too much into that. Maybe it was originally there in the source material. But it's, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the investigative journalism part. There are some... It's kind of manufactured drama, but still some fairly dramatic scenes where they're deciding whether to publish or not, and they're pushing the deadline further and further, and they need to turn the presses on if they're ever going to get this story out. It feels a little bit false, though, because there's less of a chance of being scooped quite in the same way back in the 1970s, I think, because you couldn't just turn on CNN and find it or be all over the internet. They probably would have been okay with another day, so it felt a little bit false. Other than that, yeah, it's entertaining enough. Um, I just, it's nice to see Bob Odenkirk on the big screen. Uh, he just seems to have got had the the crappy end of the stick here because both Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep look a good bit younger in this film than they look in real life, and a lot of makeup and things. Uh, whereas Bob Odenkirk seems to have been hit in the face with about twenty years of hard living. <laughs> <laughs> it's really rather unfair. Twenty to years of work in a North Korean labour camp. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Uh, Still, he had a nice day out. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not the best of of um, anybody involved, though. Mm. Oh, and so one particularly terrible thing in it, though. Um, over the end, it seems so amateurish, um, and I would have expected better of Spielberg. There's a scene at the end, um, and this isn't given anything because this is history. It's like you see a shot from behind of somebody playing Richard Nixon through a window in the White House. And there's some of the White House tapes are playing. And they've got an absolute muppet to play Nixon with these madly gesticulating arms. And it's some of the worst acting I've ever seen. He doesn't even speak, he's just moving and it's terrible. You know The Secret of Monkey Island? 
<laughs> Do you not see <laughs> up Monkey Island when he goes to visit him and um, Guy Brush Threepwood goes to visit the used boat salesman? Yep. And the way that guy's arms the windmill move. Windmill arms, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Basically, Nixon looks like that at the end of the post. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> cool. So, unfortunately, that brings us to the Cloverfield paradox. <laughs> Shall we? Shall we do this, shall we? Let's crack in. Let, let's just get it out of the way and hopefully we need let's, to think about it again. Let's crack that delicious shell and feast upon its off innards. Remember the halcyon days of February 2008? A precious time where the full ramifications of the global financial meltdown were still to be realised. We were all still trying to convince ourselves that Lost hadn't become 100% crap yet. And J.J. Abrams <laughs> had, just a few months previously, given his pretentious mystery box TED Talk in order to buy himself some time ahead of everybody realising that, yes, Lost definitely was 100% crap. Perhaps most importantly... February 2008 gave us the much-anticipated first reveal of that mystery box, Matt Reeves' Cloverfield, a film whose marketing preamble serves as a masterclass in word-of-mouth awareness to this day, and which actually managed to be pretty good in spite of itself. Indeed, so successful was Cloverfield in resurrecting the monster movie genre that a mere eight breathless years later, producer Abrams rushed out <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane, a schlocky, bunker-set survivalist script reappropriated and retooled to service the needs of the Cloverfield cinematic universe. Again, against the odds... Lane proved to be a pretty decent movie for the most part, and the Abrams notion of the CCU as a framework for interesting low-budget genre experiments seemed like it might not be so bad of an idea. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A much more scant two years hence, we find ourselves privy now to the Cloverfield paradox. Another retooled script, cherry-picked by Abrams to flesh out the Cloverfield vibe, and we were promised answer some of the obvious questions left open across the previous decade. And if you want to insert alarm bells here and ask, (laughs) what about the mystery box? What about those answers being of less importance than the questions themselves? Well, (laughs) I think you might be on to something there. (laughs) Paradox takes place aboard an Earth-orbiting particle accelerator manned by an international crew of astronauts and technicians, all as part of a desperate last-ditch attempt to solve the planet's looming energy crisis. As the world below slowly tears itself apart in snatches of newsreel dedicated to oil wars and other such suitably nebulous goings-on, the crew of Cloverfield Station spend a couple of years trying to get their big energy gun to shoot straight, much to the protest of the naysayers, who presumably learn nothing from CERN and who seem worried that the accelerator will rip a multi-dimensional hole in space-time. And it, and it does, because of course it does, Drew. <laughs> that is, after all, how physics works, especially all of the physics with the word quantum prefix to it. That's exactly what I was thinking. All yeah. through this, Craig, I was thinking... Wow, the physicsness is incredibly cromulent. Absolutely. Quantum means never having to say you've read a physics textbook. After finally initiating a successful test firing, the crew of Cloverfield Station are somewhat perturbed to find that the unusually loud banging sounds accompanying the light show are not just the central heating finally kicking in, but in fact the audible output of quantum shenanigans. Said said shenanigans see the station make an interdimensional hop across space-time to a region of space they are not familiar with. It turns out it's just the other side of the sun, and which, when they finally do re-establish communication with Earth, is revealed to be part of an alternate reality. Oh, jings! The solution is simple. As Daniel Brill's character Schmidt points out, to quote, From what we know of quantum physics, if we fire the accelerator again, everything will be reversed. I'm not, I'm not paraphrasing there. Uh, yeah, it's basically the... F- you know that great trope in films of if you get amnesia, then you can undo the amnesia being hit in the head? Just hit your it's head the, again. It's, it's the physics version of that. It's that, but with a particle accelerator in space. Yep. So we probably shouldn't worry too much. Except that this incredibly ill-defined version of quantum shenanigans allows for some very silly stuff to happen that will prove quite the encumbrance in our team's mission to make it home. Stuff like Chris O'Dowd's arm being bitten off at the shoulder by a wall. (laughs) Were that not enough, said arm makes an autonomous return whereby it is kept in a perspex box for the rest of the movie. Chris is not bothered by this at all, by the way. Ah, those Irish lads. (laughs) 
Very resilient. I think that's, <laughs> yes. how, that's how you become an astronaut, though. You've got to be trained for these sort of things. <laughs> Absolutely. Expect the unexpected. Yes, the old haunted house in space trope is the order of the day from here on in, albeit enabled by that handy strain of physics as magic that essentially means all bets are off and nothing need be considered too stupid from a plotting standpoint. <laughs> the annoying thing is, is that director Julius Ona shows enough understanding of his craft to raise the suspicion that there might actually have been a good movie in here before Abrams interfered. <laughs> You'll probably never know how the originally envisaged movie might have panned out, but the overwhelming, undeniable impression here is of a dissonance betwixt producer, director and script that sees the whole thing tie itself in knots trying to serve what is surely the slightest of purposes, <laughs> explaining away a big daft monster. <laughs> Arguably the most egregious offence is the waste of a really, really great international cast. Yeah. Uh, Brule and yep. O'Dowd are joined on their ridiculous mission by the likes of Gugu and Batherod, David Oyelowo, John Ortiz, Axel Henney and Zhang Zai. King Yi, all of whom who have posted performances prior to this that put them beyond reproach, and all of whom ought to be asking themselves if they ever want to sign one of J.J. Abrams' mystery contracts <laughs> again. Um, I'm guessing that you guys are on board with this then. <laughs> oh, oh, how am I on board with this, Greg? Uh, well, I said on board is definitely not where I'd want to be with um, the Cloverfield. It is awful. Does J.J. Does Abrams really you know, uh, wield that much heft that nobody was willing to tell him this was the stupidest idea ever. Well, he's going to do his second Star Wars film next year, so I suspect he does have quite a lot of heft, actually. Mm. At the very least, Bad Robot does. <sighs> yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, what you mentioned too about the great cast, I mean, like David Oyelowo and Daniel Brill in particular, yeah, it's got a far, far better cast than this garbage deserves. Um, and poor old Daniel Brühl is in particular lumbered with some truly terrible dialogue, a pretty fine example of which you provided. <laughs> I have to, I've got to say as well, from their point of view, if I were them, I'd be furious because from what I understand, actual filming, the rumour is that filming might have actually started on this before Abrams decided to retrofit it as a Cloverfield movie. So how must those guys feel about the oh, yeah, film they've it's... ended up in as opposed to the one they started? Greg, even if you didn't know that, you can tell by looking at the film that that's the case. Oh, but it is, it's, it's basically... Paramount had this turd on their hand because originally it was called the God Particle. It had mm -hmm. nothing to do with Cloverfield at all. And then it's got retrofitted into the Cloverfield universe and shuffled off to Netflix and they just dumped it in the middle of the Super Bowl. They put a big advert in the middle of the Super Bowl saying, it's available now. And like, what's this film? I've never even heard of it. That, that It's clearly going to be a very good film then that nobody's heard of before. Mm. It's got so many problems though. And I think a lot of them are actually there in the source material. I don't think that it was a particularly great base to build anything on. The very bad splicing into the Cloverfield universe is just compounded a lot of the felonies, I think. Because it has no idea what it is. I mean, is it a horror film? Yeah. Is it a science fiction film? Is it a supernatural horror comedy? It seems to be trying to set itself up as being science-based, but then a wall eats someone's arm. <laughs> at, which, at which point you're, you're laughing at it and... The presence of Chris O'Dowd and his reaction would would lend the impression that the movie is sort of winking at you, going, "No, no, we know." And I'm sitting there screaming. At, I'm sitting there screaming at the screen. Don't pretend you're laughing with me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sorry. A wall is someone's arm, and it also seems like in the event horizon. There's something else that came to my mind too, mm. Craig. Um, it's like, is the ship haunted? Mm -hmm. Seems like the ship's haunted. And then a good 10 minutes of the film is more than a little reminiscent of The Evil Dead. Mm -hmm. Or The Evil Dead 2 in particular. Um, mm, that's and a Chris good call. Chris Dowd is not helping that because he's very much with his arm. And I was expecting his arm to jump off the floor and stick two fingers in his eyes at some point. <laughs> it's all over the place, both tonally and genre-wise. When it does try for science, it has no idea what the science is or what the science does. So apparently the accident happened because a Higgs boson, singular, was smashed. I understand <laughs> that this is totally how this works. I think Thank it means God. it got drunk. Yeah. Mm. Thank God it wasn't because of the neutrinos mutating or it could have been a <laughs> hell of a lot worse. <laughs> yes. Um, this film was originally called The God Particle, which was the, the name that's been given to the Higgs boson because it's what kind of made physics theories work, which is why people were looking for it for so long. And you can you can see the thinking about it behind it, can't you? It's like, a Higgs boson. That's a thing, right? It was in the news and everything for a while. Do you remember? People will know that name. And then maybe they'll remember all those lunatic theories about how turning on the Large Hadron Collider would end the world. 
yeah, let's do that. That'll be brilliant. And then additionally, they can't figure out where they are without a gyroscope. Humans have been navigating by the stars for century, for centuries, um, and it never once occurs to them to look out of the window. <laughs> what kind of Trump advisor grade scientists are these? No, they did look out of the window though, Drew. They just <laughs> themselves when the Earth wasn't there. <laughs> Apparently, they missed the sun as well because they, yes. don't, they, they missed the, the entire star um, until the end of the film. Wrong window. <laughs> Easy mistake. <laughs> The seams where this was forced into the Cloverfield universe are incredibly obvious, mm. and and it doesn't have that compelling other ninety percent that Ken Cloverfield Lane did to mitigate it. And then uh, we get into well, I was saying nitpicking territory, but it, it's a pretty big nit to pick, and the film's full of them. But the woman in the wall, which is <laughs> which is where when I was laughing so much, Ellis, when we started talking about the banging, I assumed you're talking about that. Actually, it's oh, no, no. particularly stupid, but. The woman in the wall who had all sorts of pipes and cables going through her body, muscles and all. But she's okay and, now. And yeah, it was heavily sedated for pain, yet a few short hours later is wandering around as if nothing had happened without even a spot of blood to show for it. Yes, this is this is a stupid film. I do not care for it. Quantum, Drew. It's all quantum. That's what quantum, quantum means. Quantum of solace. Mm. But no more than a quantum. This film is dreadful, but I love it for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just absolute garbage, but I couldn't tear my eyes away from it. It's, I found it bafflingly watchable just to work out what it's going to do next. And the answer is, it's going to do anything it likes next, because causality <laughs> and reality have no basis on this film. It is daft. Um, they've thrown enough cast at it that, that it somehow I could sit and watch the, even the most ludicrous turns it has taken and got to the end of it and going, well, that was an experience. <laughs> and I, I could never possibly recommend it to anyone, but... In in that sort of so bad it's tolerable kind of way, it's 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 almost interesting. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's something watchable about its terrible terribleness that uh, <laughs> <laughs> it gives it a kind of mild recommendation for lovers of I don't know irony and bad films. But yes, <laughs> you should probably have better things to do with your time than watch this. Film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's a complete waste of everyone involved. <laughs> what? But just it's come back to my mind. I, I forgot about it earlier. What was the point of the subplot with the little girl that Gugu Mbatha-Raw's husband finds? Because that mm. seemed to exist for no purpose at all. Well, I think, I believe it existed for her to casually shrug it off after it had been built up as a huge emotional crisis. Um, but then she sort of dealt with it in the space of about five seconds by going, Ugh, and then going back to what she was doing. Mm. <laughs> I was more interested in what it says about the film, actually, that uh, toward the end there's a scene where a character, where some, some people are coming back from something to somewhere and a man is shouting into his mobile phone, tell them not to come back. Tell them not to come back. Tell them not to come back. And I'm thinking, is this, is this behind the scenes? Was this guy talking to his agent or something? <laughs> <laughs> I think that scene says more about the film and uh, what it is and what it does than uh, than anything else. <laughs> yes, quite. I'll say this for J.J. Abrams. I think there's value in what he's doing in messing with release models and marketing, etc. But I don't rate him as a I don't rate him as a director particularly. But I certainly don't rate him as a producer. And I think his creative choices outside of marketing are incredibly questionable and after watching this it feels like Cloverfield a film that I really really enjoyed actually for the most part and 10 Cloverfield Lane now feel more like happy accidents than actually <laughs> you know yes, successful well, I, films I guess we'll find out given that very luckily we're getting another Cloverfield film later this year I think well, Yay! Oh, great. a cinematic one oh. that'll be awesome <laughs> and how Almost a romantic comedy between two Cloverfield monsters. I think that would work. <laughs> That's it. Well, Drew, early man then. Yes, Scott. The world's most popular sport and its origins are brought to the big screen in plasticine form by the considerable talents of Ardman Animation's luminary Nick Park in Early Man, Park's first feature-length work since 2005's The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. I am more than a little disconcerted by the fact that it is already 13 years since that film was released. And if anyone wants me after this podcast has been recorded, I'll just be over here in a ball, alternately crying and trying to work out who turned on the Frontier Elite 2 like time accelerator on my life. Man once lived alongside the dinosaurs, until a bloody great rock came from space and killed off all of the oversized lizards, leaving only humans, mammoths and other more manageably sized animals of the kind we are largely used to today. 
Oh, and the odd enormous fanged megaduck, naturally. The death of the dinosaurs wasn't the only gift bestowed upon humans by space rocks, though. As unto man was bestowed the beautiful game, events we see in an entertaining and inventive opening montage as a glowing, football-sized meteorite is kicked around, at first because it's bloody hot, but then with increasing purposefulness as the game begins to find a recognisable structure, including the legendary use of piles of prehistoric jumpers as goalposts. The timid, unambitious descendants of these footballing pioneers now live in a small and isolated valley, where they gather in parties to hunt their fearsome prey, the bunny rabbit. They have lost touch both with their ancestors and the modern world, but their Stone Age existence is soon brought into contact with the modern Bronze Age when the Tom Hiddleston-voiced villain, Lord Nuth, invades their valley in order to mine the copper to be found there. The hunter-gatherers, led by Eddie Redmayne's Doug, are turfed out of their valley home and into the surrounding badlands. After a failed attempt to attack these foes, Doug finds himself in a Bronze Age city where he is mistaken for a player from the local football team and reigning champions, Real Bronzio. He is eventually discovered and arranges a wager with Lord Nuth to play a football match against the champs, with the Stone Age players getting their valley back if they win, or agreeing to spend their life working in a copper mine if they lose. Cue your typical sporting underdog story, perfunctory training montage and final contest. I was rather looking forward to this because urban animation stuff has been so good in the past, Waltz and Gromit stuff in particular. But this, it's so humdrum. While Early Man has some of the charm that made Waltz and Gromit such enduring favourites, it has little of the humour or entertainment and I found myself thoroughly disappointed. Many of its best parts are recycled. Seeing a character use a beetle as a prehistoric beard trimmer is mildly amusing. But, well, it's the Flintstones, isn't it? Action replay by Puppet Show is novel, but the accompanying analysis by an Alan Hansen-like commentator was done before, and done considerably better, in Robbie the Reindeer in Hooves of Fire 20 years ago. Lord Nuth, looking a little like a bald version of Were-Rabbit's Victor Quartermain, is a pretty bland villain. And I wonder why they bothered to cast Tom Hiddleston as the voice when all he has been asked to do is sound like one of the French knights from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> if the character had to be French, then wouldn't this football film of all films be the one where you should cast Eric Cantona? <laughs> there is a lot of reliance on some pretty naff wordplay, and even then writers Mark Burton and James Higginson seem to have run out of ideas pretty quickly. The Grand Ruler is called Queen... Ufifa. And that yeah, and that weak pun, plus a Manchester United reference that should have been worked harder, is pretty much all they have. Naming your team for the world's biggest football club seems like a good idea, but simply swapping out the Madrid and Real Madrid for Bronzio seems particularly insipid and uninspired, especially for a studio typically so proficient at punning. As usual, putting three or four of the best jokes into the trailer including by far the film's best joke, certainly hasn't helped matters. There are flashes of something in here. Sliced bread. Wow. That's like the best thing since... ever. But sadly, it never really gets going, and even at only 89 minutes, it outstays its welcome. One last thing. Park and his team are skilled animators, but I wonder if I am alone in tiring a little of Ardman's trademark style all goggly eyes, wide mouths and square teeth. I'd like to see them try something a little different for their next outing, as I'm quite bored of this look. Oh, and another last thing. Making that last last thing a penultimate thing, I suppose. Whose dunderheaded idea was it to release Early Man in January? In a World Cup year? (laughs) Football films are few and far between as it is. And in six months, Studio Canal could have ridden FIFA's coattails and let the tournament hype do much of their marketing for them. Yeah, but they wanted to release it early, man. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, this struck me as baffles. There's a World Cup this summer. Wouldn't you release it in the summer when people are thinking about football a lot? <laughs> I don't understand that. Yep, not it's, seen it's... this, and uh, it doesn't sound like I need to. <laughs> no, it's... Yeah. yeah, the Walsh and Gotti films are, are so good and this is just, it, it's not bad, it's just really kind of naff and bland. Very, very much missable. Yeah, I hope Arben do branch out. I'm waiting to see an Arben Giallo. I think that'll go down quite well. <laughs>
So I guess that brings me on to me with The Darkest Hour. 1940 was, all things considered, a garbage year. Nazis! Nazis everywhere! Well, mainly mainland Europe spreading quickly across France. Uh, with the Allied forces on the run, Neville Chamberlain finds himself facing and losing a vote of no confidence. The only acceptable candidate for a grand coalition government is Winston Churchill, who is duly sworn in by a, ris- a sceptical King George, with Churchill himself only tolerated rather than supported by his party, the Tories. Uh, for listeners outside of the UK, that's the evil party, although, <laughs> well, they're not so bad when compared to the Nazis. Nazis are just the worst. This film concerns itself with only a few weeks of World War II, but they're pretty pivotal. With Allied forces being overwhelmed and driven back to Dunkirk with seemingly little hope of rescue, there's the general feeling amongst the War Cabinet that the situation is hopeless and that the course of action that will minimise the loss of life and allow some semblance of normality on the homeland would be to sue for peace. Churchill will hear of no such thing and presses for options to continue the fight, including the now-famous evacuation of Dunkirk. This intransigence pushes Chamberlain to start agitating behind the scenes for another vote to depose Churchill, giving Churchill another front to fight on. However, after sampling public opinion, Churchill pushes through with his instincts and rallies Parliament and the public to fight the Nazi threat to the end. Now, all of that makes for a relatively interesting work of fiction, looking at the levers of wartime politics and a capsule take of why Churchill is held in such regard to this day. Unfortunately, the critical part of that last sentence was work of fiction, as in terms of accuracy, or at least verifiable accuracy, I wouldn't trust this film much past it saying World War II happened. (laughs) Most of the critical moments that informs the film's look at Churchill and indeed his political rivals are inventions, in particular the brain-meltingly idiotic Churchill runs off and takes the underground to chat to people sequence that could not be sappier and hokier if it tried. Now, most of the discussion about Darkest Hour revolves around Gary Oldman's Winston Churchill impression, which maybe why I was expecting something much more powerful than what was delivered. It's a decent impression, to be sure, but that does rather get uh, in the way of connecting with Churchill as a character supposedly being tested to the point of abandoning his beliefs. This is, is all caricature. Still, Churchill is a fascinating enough character to shoulder the burden of the film, and it's certainly an enjoyable enough watch. When, as here in Darkest Hour, you only pull the laudable, admirable bits out of Churchill's character, it's obvious why he was frequently ranked as the best Brit whatever done lived in that. It makes very little effort to show the other side of Churchill's character and deeds, bar a small reference to the failure at Gallipoli, which does at times have this edge uncomfortably close to hagiography and propaganda. Not for this film to mention, for instance, his quite horrendous racism, or his role in starving three million Indians, or his other steadfast defences of imperial atrocities. Now, I suppose that's just not in this film's remit, but there's something about the combination of inaccuracy in this look at the events and the incompleteness of the examination of Churchill's character that makes it seem like a waste of effort on everyone's behalf. Uh, Now, shorn of that concern, which, to be honest, maybe the the sort of concern only develops when you have to write a review about it, Darkest Hour is certainly a well-put-together film with a talented cast in front and behind the cameras and kept me entertained for the two hours or so that it lasts. It's just not a great source if you want to be informed at the same time. <laughs> Citation needed. Yeah, I suspect then I enjoyed it somewhat more than you, Scott, but most of the criticisms you have, I have also. It, it really borders on hagiography. And you mentioned to Churchill's noted racism, and I thought that really stood at odds with the fact that there's a scene in this where he very conspicuously shakes the hand of a black man in the subway. Yes. Yeah. It's like, that didn't ring true. I was watching that thinking... Yeah, that probably <laughs> wouldn't happen. Um, the other issue I had going into this was that, and having seen the photographs and the trailer and things, like, was this simply going to be an impression or an impersonation? Hmm. And it certainly skirts close to that. Um, and I, I heard a, an interview with the director, I think, a couple of weeks ago, um, and maybe the makeup artist, and talking about how they were using the prosthetics and things, and they wanted to have enough prosthetics to make him look like Churchill, but then not so much that you couldn't see Gary Oldman under that, or he couldn't act through them. Hmm. I think largely they've got that right, because I'm certainly aware of the acting going on under there. It is, it does just perhaps hold a bit too close to, caricature's not quite right, but certainly impression. That said, it's still a very good performance, and it's, the character's entertaining and compelling. And as long as you don't think too much about how the fact is not, certainly not a complete picture of this person and certainly not very accurate in many ways, it's a very entertaining film and I would certainly encourage people to watch. I enjoyed that a great deal. 
But yes, you're not going to get a great deal of fact out of it. No. That said, yeah, it's an important time period. Certainly, the bits that are based on his real speeches, and I, I, most people have heard clips of the We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches um, speech, which is absolutely very, very stirring. Yeah. And so it makes for a very entertaining watch. Um, just, you know, read a book if you want to actually learn anything about that time period. The There is a line that Stephen Delane gets given at the end, though, that it kind of summed up the film for me, actually, too. He says that he basically militarised the English language and sent it into battle. And it, that kind of sums up the way the, the film approaches the time period and the character. That it's just using language for, for this power without it having necessarily any truth behind it. Hmm. Um, but yeah, great performances. An, an enjoyable film, even if it's... Um, <laughs> has all those problems we've mentioned, but I would definitely uh, urge people to watch it and then maybe, you know, read a book afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> read a few counterpoints. As, yes. As, particularly if you're British, I think. I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure many other nations don't particularly need to be reminded of it. Uh, maybe India, perhaps. But, um, yeah, uh, the I'm always slightly galled by the un, the unquestioning reverence that he's held in, in this country you know, when, when in fact he's a very complicated character with many flaws and positives to go on to, and those negatives never seem to enter the conversation at all. And I think they deserve at least to be mentioned somewhere, just saying. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a good it, film. Yeah, and it's worth watching. Yeah, there are. I mean, it's actually one of the... It's weird that it's... Gary Oldman's shown that he can do so much with, with almost nothing, too, like he did in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. There's one scene in this that... I find it really quite affecting, but it's, it does rely on some knowledge of Churchill, I think, too, because there's a scene where I think if you don't know, he might look like he's got dementia or something because he just looks so bewildered as he's sitting on a bed and his wife Clementine comes in to see him and he's just he's at a complete loss, but he almost looks like he's lost his mind or something, but it's because he's suffering from the Great Depression that he famously suffered from. But just um, so there's something about that seems really affecting. It shows that when he wasn't actually possibly the, for me, apart from the way the stirring speech at the end, but the most affecting scene of the film is the one in which Gary Oldman was doing the least, and therefore doing the least impression. But, mm. but that scene does seem to rely on people knowing that he suffered from depression, which is never mentioned in the film. So it expects people to know that, but then the rest of it is, I don't know. A bit uneven in terms of what he expects you to know and what he's, he's trying to tell you, given that there's a whole lot of untruth in there. So, something else then. Following on seamlessly in both tone and execution, Coco. 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 So, the latest from Disney Pixar then, and as such, you've probably either seen it already or are at least very much aware of its existence. Yes, why must we be getting so delayed in this country? Yes. I don't understand it. Set in present-day Mexico, it is the story of Miguel, a young boy who aspires to be the world's most famous musician, but is somewhat hampered by his family's generational ban on absolutely anything related to music. The reason for this ban is the apparent abandonment of family by Miguel's great-great-grandfather, who, as his grandmother explains it, left home in pursuit of fame, essentially orphaning his infinite daughter. His infinite daughter? My by Jove. Uh, his infant daughter. <laughs> That young girl is now Miguel's great-grandmother Coco, and while she is still with us, her advanced age has rendered her an almost entirely passive presence in family life. Miguel decides that if he is ever to realise his dream of stardom in the mould of his great hero Ernesto de la Cruz, he must break free of his family and earn the approval of his great-great-grandfather, a plan that necessitates journeying into the land of the dead, where our young hero meets Hector, a charming troublemaker who becomes Miguel's guide in the afterlife. Even an ignoramus such as myself, who knows little of Mexican culture, has a pretty good chance of being familiar with that nation's obsession with family and the remembrance thereof, a tradition that culminates annually in the famous Day of the Dead celebrations. It is a rich cultural vein that offers a good deal of potential for adventure. However, as with most such cultural appropriations for the benefit of primarily English-speaking audiences, there is an equal potential for national affront and ill-informed offence. It is with some degree of, albeit unqualified, relief then that I report Coco appears to be a thoughtful, broadly respectful foray into the character of a national identity that is, I wager, far more profound in its message than anything else we've spoken about tonight. 
Initially, I was slow to warm to Coco. For sure, there were laugh-out-loud moments in the first ten minutes that are probably funnier than anything I saw throughout the whole of 2017. The characters are immediately endearing. The animation and production design are sublime, and the score wonderfully evocative, if a little predictable. For some reason, however, I spent the first 30 minutes or so unsure as to whether I was actually going to be able to engage with the movie on an emotional level, perhaps as a reflex reaction to the technical perfection. At one point, I found myself impressed by a particular camera move, lost myself in the complexities of how such a virtual flight path might be made to look so natural, and thereafter spent more time focusing on this than on the actual plethora of entertainment riches laid out before me. (laughs) Ultimately, however, I was essentially broadsided into emotional complicity somewhere between 45 minutes to an hour in, rendered helpless to do much else other than sob embarrassingly into my wife's sweater (laughs) for pretty much the last third of the movie. (laughs) The catalyst for this, an emotional plot twist that, while not difficult to spot coming, surprised in its depth like some sneaky heart tsunami suddenly reaching land as a mile-high wall of remorse, was so overwhelming that it essentially sucked my eyeballs into the screen and refused to give them back until I damn well bore witness to everything else this film had to say about love, family, parenthood and remembrance. I can't recall another occasion where a movie pulled this kind of robodope on me, and it certainly caught me off guard. The last Pixar movie I think I saw was Inside Out, and in that instance I went in expecting exactly this kind of reaction, yet left feeling utterly numb to it all. Technically, Coco is a marvel, testimony to what can be achieved creatively through tools we were told were here to massacre traditional animation techniques and leave us forever cold. And, remarkably, all rendered in real time on a single 1080 Ti while the rest of the world's GPUs are out mining Bitcoin. (laughs) Everyone involved really ought to have a medal, but the most impressive achievement of all is how convincingly Coco renders a beating human heart. Really, quite a remarkable movie. Yes. I agree with Craig. Um, my, my my only difference would be that I enjoyed it from the start. Mm. <laughs> I was sold in it from the outset. Mm. Um, without repeating everything you've said, which is absolutely true, it's beautiful and it's uh, you know it looks incredible. It's got a lot of heart, a lot of intensity. My dear wife, who is a Mexican, reports that it is not culturally appropriating in any uh, sense that we need to be worried about. So I, from that one sample, I'm pretty sure I can extrapolate <laughs> that to all of Mexico. It's a sample that matters yeah. most to us. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, fine in that regard. And it's, it seems like pretty sensitively handled, handled as best as we can tell. Yes, it's just a wonderful film. There's there's a lot of things mm. that I thought would maybe be a little bit too broad, like that dog at the start, I think that's that's awfully broad, but somehow it is just goofy enough to work. In it. I never stopped laughing at that yeah. stupid dog. It was fantastic, no. and um, the payoff of it becoming a goofy spirit animal yeah. was quite yeah. <laughs> really quite touching. Yeah. In a, in a, Dante the Alibrihe is was fantastic. I really liked that. <laughs> yeah, but no point believing it. It's if it's not the best film I see this year, I'll I may be surprised. Uh, most years it would certainly be contending for it. It's uh, right up there with uh, Kubo and the uh, Two Strings mm. for you know best animated film of the past decade or so. So definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely go and watch it. It's brilliant. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to shock you here. You preferred uh, the Cloverfield Paradox, didn't you? <laughs> 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 no, uh, like Scott, I love this from the start. Um, it's. I was a little worried. I've seen some of the the posters and screenshots and it looked really colourful, but almost like too colourful. It was just too much going on on screen. Mm. Um, and that was the only real worry I had going into this. But when you actually watch it, no, it's not a problem mm. at all. It's just, it's so it's so bright and vibrant and colourful and funny and inventive. And it's just a beautiful film. Mm. Uh, and I was an absolute wreck by the end. Especially that last the last thirty minutes, like mm. oh these these aren't tears, no, <laughs> and and all the performances are so good too, and I think it's going to. I'm with. I mean, I like Mexican culture a lot, and I was like spotting things at you know. So I suspect it's one of those films too that in, culturally, it, there's so many things you could see in a repeat viewing as well. Yeah, like things I knew like there's was the uh, the De La Cruz character is definitely based on people like the likes of Pedro Infante although the real Pedro Infante and, well say real it's like, um, Pedro the real Infante dead one and, shows up <laughs> the real Pedro Infante and Jorge Negrete um, are actually mentioned in the film and, but this guy's very much like Pedro Infante with the, the films and the music um, and then there's El Santo, the famous yeah. luchador 
So there's all the things that I know, and I'd say if you go deeper and deeper, I suspect it's absolutely full of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, all the the Dia de Muertos stuff, it seems to be handled really quite sensitively. Mm-hmm. Although it would be nice if the scriptwriter decided how that was meant to be pronounced. As far as I can tell, the correct way is Dia de Muertos. A lot of English English speakers say Dia de los Muertos, which isn't incorrect, but most of the people in the film were saying it right, and in the end credits they mentioned it correctly, but then some other people were saying it wrong, and that's, that was the only downside, was like, make up your mind about that place. Because <laughs> everything else was fantastic. Yes, again, a small nit to pick, perhaps, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know, it's just, because it stood out to me, because um, I know that people get that wrong, and then it's like, you have Gael Garcia Bernal's character is saying it right, and then other people are saying it right, and saying it right in the end credits, then other people have the loss in it. That, that's really strange. Just because the actor is going to assume that that loss was meant to be in there and said it, but the director didn't create, correct them. Like you yeah. say, I suspect there are enough sort of sneaky things in there that you could probably do a deep dive, but for the most part, it paints it culturally in quite broad strokes, which I suspect it needs to do to maintain uh, accessibility for as broad an audience um, as it's as it's aiming for. But um, it's at the end of the day, it's not really a Mexican movie. It's that's it's a it's a framework for the message the film is trying to convey, which just happens to be pretty pretty suitably borne out through that through that that choice and I thought oh man technically the more I look at this film the more technically it it baffles me in terms of even subtle stuff that um, sort of like the overall the the way that lighting is used in the film in very very subtle ways but where a lot of this this probably sound daft but in order to create complexity through lighting is probably uh, a very particular tradecraft in itself uh, things like the, the the camera moves which are in places meant to emulate sort of handheld camera to do that convincingly in a way that doesn't look like an approximation of handheld camera but makes you forget that it's not a handheld camera things like that just really really stunning just sublime and you wouldn't really necessarily notice if you weren't looking for it which is usually the hallmark of that kind of thing being done incredibly incredibly well so just an absolute technical marvel but mm-hmm. that it manages to marry that with so much um heart is uh, really incredible so um, yeah I'm willing to concede that the first half hour of this film where I found it difficult to engage is more my fault than it's and I look forward to watching it again yeah when you say about the technical stuff I think Pixar have always been top of the game when it comes to that and we've we've talked before to that we are not as immediately enamoured of every Pixar film that everybody, in the way that everybody else seems to be hmm. we do think that Pixar can do wrong or at least do not quite Meh. so great, yes. Yeah, but technically, they've always been great. They're from the beginning, from Toy Story. Just the light, Pixar's mastery of lighting has been top notch forever. And it's how can they get better? Oh, they've got better. Well done. That's impressive. And then this time, they've married that technical billions up with a fantastic story. Has there ever been an animated film nominated for a cinematography Oscar? So no, it's- I would. I would doubt, doubt it. it. At least not from the Academy Awards. Yeah. Not somewhere else has maybe been a bit more, um, had a bit more foresight and that sort of thing. I can see it. It's almost getting to the point where you would have to consider it because I can't imagine I'll, I'll watch a film that looks better than this this year. But yeah, but um, maybe they should actually move on to allowing animated films to be in the best film thing instead of in their own yeah. separate animated <laughs> category first. <laughs> I think there's still that snobbery around it where people think the involvement of computers makes things easier. Whereas actually in a great many respects, if anything, it probably makes it more difficult. And yeah, I don't think I'll... I can't imagine seeing a better looking film than this this year. I can't, like you say, Scott, I can't imagine seeing a better film than it full stop, to be honest. Yeah, it's ruined the rest of the year, really. <laughs> Nothing to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a mild recommendation for all of us for Coco, um, which just just edges it as the best film of this podcast. Yes, <laughs> it's okay. I mean, only I only spent a quarter of it in tears. You know, <laughs> right. Um, I think that will wrap us up for today. Then, unless there's any other items on the agenda. Yeah, well, a wee bit of feedback on Twitter. I think the only directly relevant one is from our friends at the Magic Lantern Podcast. That's at Lantern Resourcast who. Uh, the reference made the Cloverfield paradox gets zero gibbs, which is a reference which may not make a lot of sense when you. Just, but if you do see it, there's a poster, uh, a picture of a dog looking very unimpressed by the Cloverfield paradox. It is paradox. their patented serial killer dog-based rating system, um, and this is their lowest rating. <laughs> also, our good friend um, Matt Toller at M Toller said, "I've only seen Cloverfield paradox. 
a hodgepodge of disjointed sci-fi scraps shuffled together and fired out of a publicity stunt cannon. <laughs> Good sets, decent acting, just no rug to tie the room together. <laughs> That's what is directly relevant, but yes, um, thanks to everyone else who's uh, chimed in on various topics over the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and including Stephen Nelson's request that we do an Adam Sandler special. That's not what he said. He wants an Adam Sandler special, he just isn't brave enough to admit it. No. I could I could almost get behind some sort of best of Friedkin look, but there's a lot of mm, not so good films you'd have to <laughs> dodge your way around that. But we'll, we'll see about. It basically the request was to do some more um, episodes featured around directors uh, or actors' progressions, and uh, we'll probably get back to that at some point once we've cleared out our next podcast, which will be on the uh, remnants of Studio Ghibli's output. So we're going to tidy that off and uh, strike that one off the list. Uh, for you on the 1st of March. That's the next month, isn't it? January, February, March. Yes, correct. Well done, me. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we'd heartily encourage that you do so on Twitter. That's at FudsOnFilm, through Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm or through your emails at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com and uh, yes, it's been a pleasure to be in your ear holes and we hope to be again there again soon. Um, until next time, I've been Scott Morris. Craig Eastman has been Craig Eastman. Its vision is based on movement. Andrew Davendale has been Andrew Davendale. Hi. Ta-da!